love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined with co-host Yasmin Salak, and we're bringing you a conversation with Rabbi Steve Cohen. You'll hear about his connection to Santa Barbara and how he's seen it change over the course of the few decades he's lived here. And we'll also hear about how the Jewish story of Passover and the practice of Shabbat have supported him in the past year. Rabbi Steve, Yasmin, and I have been in community with each other through various interfaith projects for about two years at this point, so I hope you feel right at home as you join us in this conversation. I'm really excited to be here today with my co-host Yasmin Salak and Rabbi Steve Cohen, who was the senior rabbi at Congregation B'nai B'rith, which is just up off San Marcos Road overlooking Tucker's Grove. Since this is intended to be a local-focused podcast, I want to first acknowledge the history of the land that we're living on which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Chumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality and community. Rabbi Steve, can you share your preferred pronouns, how long you've called Santa Barbara home and what excites you about being part of the Human Family Podcast? So my pronouns are he, him, and his. I've been in Santa Barbara since 1985, so about 35 years Hmm. or 36 years. And I'm really excited about the Human Family Podcast. I I think it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for for us, for for me and my community to share about um, us with other people who are interested and also for us to learn about other people. I just think it's uh, a wonderful way of reaching out and connecting with each other during this time when we can't be together physically. Hmm. Since 1985, I wasn't born yet. (laughs) That was 10 years before I came into this world. I'm curious as to what's one of the biggest things that's changed in Santa Barbara since 1985, since you first walked these lands. Yeah. Well, Goleta has changed a lot. I was working in Isla Vista from 1985 to 2004. Mm-hmm. And when I first came, a lot of open fields, which have since then um, been developed. That whole area that is now Camino Real was uh, back in those days, empty fields. And uh, and in general, it does have much less of a open and undeveloped field than it did back then. Also, Something that I'm particularly sort of sad about and missing is the the butterflies in Elwood. The butterfly groves back in those days, there were thousands and thousands of monarch butterflies. And and it was a, somebody had posted a sign up there saying, this is a sacred space, hmm. act that way. <laughs> hmm. And it really felt true to walk into that that grove and to see those thousands of butterflies just, just hanging from the branches was a magnificent, beautiful, and an awe-inspiring sight. And mm. they're pretty much gone now. 
I think all of us are clinging to some hope that there may be a return, but with less and less optimism as the years go by. Mm. So those are two things that come to mind. Yeah. The Camino Real development hasn't been all bad, even though I miss that openness and the, the, uh, the empty spaces that were there in the middle of, of Galita. I do appreciate being able to sit out there to go to the farmer's market there on, mm-hmm. on Sunday. And you know, it has become a, a community. It's a place to, to uh, see people and to sit out and have a donut or a, a burrito or whatever, and to just see people. And so I don't see it as all bad. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the place where I grew up in um, Danville, California, on a, on a shorter time scale, admittedly. But I remember from when I was, from when I could first remember, there used to be these rolling hills on the other side of the street from my development. Mm. And by the time I got into high school, it was all neighborhoods and, and homes. I remember thinking that was so strange and it kind of got pushed out, you know, further and further. And because we were kind of, we used to be on the edge of the openness, mm-hmm. but then that's, that's changed. But, yeah. One happy story that my family and I were part of is that the the Elwood Bluffs, which are between the area where we we live in San, in the Santa Barbara Shores area, and uh, between Santa Barbara Shores and the ocean, there's these you know beautiful Elwood Bluffs, which is near where the the butterflies were actually. But that area was slated for something like 300 houses, and there was a wonderful community effort and coming together of the city of Goleta and the university and the private developer. And they actually, they actually did a good thing and moved all of the, the houses over to near Hollister. So that area would be open for forever. Hmm. Uh, and that was a moment where I felt like, okay, it is still possible for people to come together and, and make something good happen. I love that you mentioned the butterflies of Galita mm. because I was lucky to see them once eight years ago mm-hmm. during my freshman year at UCSB. And it was, it was such a beautiful thing just seeing these butterflies just yeah. flying everywhere. It was almost surreal. And that's definitely one of my favorite memories of Santa Barbara. Yeah. And this was the time of year when they would come sort of from between November and February. So yeah. right, right now in January, it was the best time to go and see the butterflies. And my wife was a butterfly docent, actually. She would, mm. she oh, would she, yeah, yeah, yeah. She would um, go out there for a few hours every week and would explain to people what they were seeing. Yeah. Time changes so many things and things are always in flux. Things are always in flux. And yeah, that kind of brings you to one of my questions here. Over the course of a few thousand years, Judaism has had many expressions in our world as it's been shared by many cultural and ethnic groups. I'm curious to how you would locate yourself in the broad tree of Judaism that we see today. And what's something that you love about your own expression of Judaism? Mm. Well, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And I appreciate it, just the acknowledgement and recognition that that it's a, a big tree with many different branches. I grew up in Rochester, New York, <clears throat> and so it took uh, many years for me to come to feel at home in California. But 
now, after 35 or 36 years, I would describe myself as a California Jew. And that phrase actually has many different levels to it. For one thing, uh, in terms of the Jewish diaspora, the, the wanderings of the Jewish people, it feels like California is at the end of the road. It's one of those places that is furthest away from the starting points of the Jewish people. And, uh, and that's both an interesting, that's a, it's a very interesting place to be as a Jew. It means that we're very far here in Santa Barbara, we're very far from the centers of Jewish history and Jewish life, far from Israel, far from New York City. Of course, geographically, we're not that far from Los Angeles, which is a big Jewish center. But I think, as we all know, Santa Barbara is quite separate from Los Angeles. Mm. So anyway, I've actually, I don't have them in front of me and I don't have them memorized, but I've actually written a couple of poems about being a California Jew and mm. the experience of finding oneself very far away from one's beginnings. Mm. And... So there's a feeling of being in exile and, well, being in exile, but also being in a place where there's a lot of freedom to, to choose the way to express one's Judaism. Mm. And when you're in an old Jewish community that has been established for a long time and families and institutions have been there for generations, there's less flexibility in those kinds of of settings than in a place like this where we're all free to, we, we have to create whatever it's going to be. Mm. So I see myself as being in a position of needing to be a connector for Jews back to the sources of Judaism, to the centers of Judaism, but also to, to work with people to, to empower them to, to create whatever is going to be the Judaism of the future. I guess that's a little bit of how I locate myself in the, in the Jewish tree. Yeah. I think I can relate as being Muslim in Santa Barbara. It's, I feel the same way mm. where our community is very removed and it's relatively much smaller. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's pros and cons to it. Right. The cons are it's not an established community. You feel like you you yourself have to put in the work to create the community. I feel like my community has struggled to bring in like scholars that we want to learn from just because we're so far away. But a beautiful thing that I found being in a smaller community that's really removed is that we've become this really nice tight-knit community and you you really get to know your neighbor in a more intimate way as compared to living in a much larger community where maybe you just like know your family Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely and i i I do want to say yes mean that i've been very moved um by all of the contact that i've had with our local muslim community and have been fascinated really by the way that even more than our local Jewish community, that the Muslim community is so international. And uh, I, I remember coming over to the new Islamic center on one of the celebrations and seeing just all of the different dresses from all over the world. And in some ways, Santa Barbara, the Jewish community of Santa Barbara also is a very international place. You wouldn't necessarily expect that in a relatively small (laughs) 
place. But, you know, we've got Jews here from all over the world, really. People who grew up in, in Russia, in South Africa, in Chile, in um, Mexico, Cuba, Israel, Iran. And that's all, another thing that's kind of distinctive about being a Jew here in Santa Barbara is it's a, a very rich mix of people from all over the place. Yeah, I mean, that is surprising, especially because we are a smaller community, how diverse yeah. it ends up being. And mm -hmm. I think also like you, you kind of reminded me about also one of the great things about being a smaller Muslim community is as compared to bigger Muslim communities that are just so busy with their own community, we've, because we're a smaller community, we've had a lot more opportunities to interact with other faiths of Santa Barbara. And so mm -hmm. I've always been so thankful to interact with you and the people of CBB. And I think that wasn't something I experienced in other Muslim communities from where I grew up. But because mm -hmm. ISSB is much smaller, we've found ourselves to interact a lot more with people of other faiths. Yeah, yeah. And I, I certainly never, I never had met a Muslim in my life before coming to Santa Barbara. Yeah, and when you were mentioning the sense of being in exile, yeah, and how it's not just an idea, but it's something that we feel in our bodies of, yeah, wondering where home is and feeling mm -hmm. like we're away from home. And yet, of course, this is the only one of the only homes that we've known, or maybe we've never lived in the place that we we're thinking of as our kind of religious traditions home. But it is interesting because, I mean, as a Christian, I think I falsely think of myself as being home in America because obviously the home of Christianity is not America. And the home or the roots of all three of our traditions come from a relatively, well, they all come from a similar area. Yeah. yeah. So it's just interesting to note that there is a sense that, yeah, that America is a Christian country, yet was founded on principles of religious freedom, not specific necessarily. Mm -hmm. But yeah, home is something that's felt. And I think that's something that is hard to express. And even as we look in, in the Bible, and I'm not sure, but maybe in the Quran as well, but the, our stories are so often we're looking at these people who are navigating the world looking for home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's some sense of while we're on the journey towards home, we also kind of find home in the communities that we're in. Absolutely. And, th th and that's actually uh, one of the things that I had definitely wanted to mention today is mm -hmm. that, as I said, when I came to Santa Barbara uh, 36 years ago, I just felt completely out of my element. And here I was, this East Coast Jew, and I was working in Isla Vista, working with the college students there. And I was so estranged from you know, the whole surfer culture. I was mm -hmm. intimidated and just so conscious of not fitting in. And for many years, I, I felt like, well, one day I'll move back East and be back with my people. <laughs> mm. And then very slowly over the years, I started to feel more at home. And then... It was about maybe eight or nine years ago, I began to think about, well, what would it mean 
what would it mean to really say, this is my home? Hmm. To stop putting the emphasis so much on being in exile and to, you know, just as Jews everywhere, wherever they've gone, there, there have been wonderful Jewish communities in the first diasporic Jewish community was in Iraq, hmm. what, what was called Babylonia, but then in, in Spain, and then in Northern Europe, um, in France and Germany and Poland, and really all over the world, there have been these remarkable Jewish communities that had a sense of being outside of the land, in exile, in a way, and yet they also came to be very rooted in the places that they were living. And so I began to be interested in Santa Barbara and began to ask, well, what's the history here? And, and I actually, for the first time, began to allow myself to be interested in the Chumash. And I guess for many years, I had felt that would be something that I wasn't really allowed to do, to curious about the people who lived here for, for thousands and thousands of years. And as you described so beautifully in your introduction, Kenny, and that has been a very fruitful and meaningful, and I think important way for me to start thinking about this. And it, you know, what goes along with that is, is much more of a sense of responsibility for the land here, for the place, to know the history as much as I can and to know the old stories of this place. And I've actually worked with our educational team to incorporate hiking in the trails here and learning about the history of this particular place as part of our Jewish education. Yeah. I mean, I like that you talked about how along with the idea of kind of a decision to lean into Santa Barbara as home that meant that you learned the stories of this place. Yeah. And many of which are, are there are beautiful stories and terrible stories of incredible suffering. Mm-hmm. I had never heard uh, until just a few years ago, the, you know, the story of the uprising of the Chumash during the, you know, the period between the, the end of, of the Spanish conquest here or the the time that that this was part of of Spain and then when it became when it was becoming part of Mexico and that there was a there's a whole in, amazing story about about a Chumash um, uprising and the taking flight over the mountains hmm. and then a group of soldiers going back and bringing them back so it was a uh, that was just one example of a story that it, it was shocking to me that I had never heard that story after, you know, living here for 25 years or 30 years. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, the, the longer I live here, the, the more interesting I find it. And really the more in love I become with this place. And I feel like I'm entitled to love this place. And that is a good thing to, to love the place where you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's kind of a sense that to maybe in a kind of a, a, uh, traveling mindset or something like that. We think of like a good engagement with a place as trying great restaurants and maybe visiting some some historical sites, but that sometimes is not on the top of the list for people who are kind of traveling for, for fun. 
Mm. But yeah, instead to think about how learning the stories of the places is pretty critical to coming to make a connection with the, with the place. Yeah. It also, I mean, just to, sorry to interrupt, but uh, (laughs) in terms of this human family project, I think that it's also perhaps the key to our beginning to feel more connected to each other's communities is that what is it that we all share? Well, we all live here, (laughs) Mm -hmm. even though we have our own traditions, our own religions, our own languages, foods, you know, there's so much that, that we're trying to preserve within our own communities, but we do all share this particular piece of land. It almost seems like one of the most important steps of calling a place home is really realizing the people around you as family or mm. close neighbors. And I, it's, Santa Barbara is an interesting place because we have University of California, Santa Barbara. And so, so many people that live here are only here for four years and then they leave. So they don't have that much time to invest in the community. And and also Santa Barbara is a tourist city. So I feel like sometimes it is a little bit challenging to create this cohesive community that calls one another neighbors just because so many people move in and out. But I think it really is important for those who are living here long term just to know that it is important to invest in learning about other communities and seeing the similarities so that we can connect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And of course, with the, <laughs> it's ironic, but true that often it's the, the disasters that make us feel connected. And between the fires and then the debris flow, there was something about, or there has been something about these disasters that has, I think, made us all feel more of a sense of a common, a shared destiny or however you want to put it. Yeah, it's kind of wild because since I graduated from college a few years ago, we've had we've had fires, mm. debris flow, and COVID-19. Like, I, I know. I'm just like, okay, so every year turns out uh, <laughs> is insane. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. And yet at the same time, there's the constant kind of discrepancy between the all of that all of the the trouble and the suffering and the beauty of the place mm-hmm. and the fact that I can walk in in 5 minutes from my house be out on the bluffs and be watching a a unbelievable sunset or or in just a few minutes be out in the uh, on the on one of the trails and be far away from everybody mhm and the, and the juxtaposition of the that beauty and peace together with the the awareness of the the fact that our hospitals are, are that our hospital right now is completely overwhelmed with and that people are hundreds of people are dying yeah yeah i i mean i totally agree with you that along with the terrible things that are happening with disasters such as covid it's very interesting how beautiful things can come out of it 
the other day I decided to do like an urban hike just to walk around the streets with my mask, of course. Uh-huh. And something really interesting that I noticed is for some reason, for a very long time, I noticed people aren't very open to just talking to anybody on the street. But it mm-hmm. almost seemed this time that people have missed talking to people just being at home and alone for so long. Mm -hmm. I was more social with strangers than I've ever been. And it was was just such a strange connection. Why does everybody want to talk now? Like (laughs) really miss each other. And and that only came out of COVID, which separated all of us. Right. Lots of, lots more eye contact also. Oh yeah. You know, over, over, <laughs> over our masks. But. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Be- being in, in interfaith work, we often look at ways in which various communities have common perspectives on the world and look through common lenses, seeking how do we have healthy relationships with others, with mm-hmm. God, with ourselves. Can you speak to how your relationship to Judaism has helped you navigate this last year, like what specific traditions or teachings have you fallen back on, especially maybe when confronted with the need for a conversation and action around racial justice? Mm. Well, that is my job as the, as, as rabbi to, to try to bring some meaning and some, something helpful to people as we're challenged in these various ways. And of course it has to start with myself. I have to if I'm going to offer anything to anybody else, I start with just trying to figure out, well, what am I finding or what might I find in my tradition that might be helpful? When we had, when we were in the early phase of the, the lockdown back in late March, and we were all at home, you know, we were all at home. Nobody was going out at all at that time. It's, it's even a little bit hard to remember exactly, but it hit me. Uh, That was in the weeks leading up to Passover. And it hit me that that story of the night of Passover, where the, where the children of Israel were in their homes as the angel of death was passing through the land Hmm. was actually a story that in some deep way fit and described the experience. You know, I began thinking more about that and putting, trying to imagine what it was like to be in, to be in that story and to be in a house where there is death outside and you don't know really how long it's going to go on for, how it's going to end and what you're going to find when you eventually do come out. And, and so just on on the level of storytelling, I have found that it's very, there's something deeply meaningful and helpful about making a connection between my own, in this case, our own experience and of and an old story. And to understand by making that connection between our own experience and our own lives and this old story, it suddenly helps to see what we're going through as something that is profoundly human and connecting to our own humanity. So that's been one 
That's one example of something that I have found helpful. Another thing, I'm, I'm actually sort of in my mind just going back through some sermons that I've given this year because that's the way in which I process these questions is when I have to give a sermon, I know that people are out there waiting to hear, well, what's Rabbi Steve going to say? <laughs> and mm. um, and it's, a big, it's a big responsibility. So it does force me to, to try to think as deeply as possible about it. So another, another sort of sermon that I gave that was helpful for, for me and, and I think helpful for others also was last spring when we had been in isolation for several months and I was feeling so sad about a lot of things. I think we we're all missing so many things, but I was, I, and I still am, but I was at that time particularly feeling so sad about not being able to sing with people. That's such a big part of my own and our religious life is singing together. <clears throat> and I was missing that deeply. And I wanted to understand that as much as I could and also look for what can I do to um, deal with my sadness. Hmm. And I was sitting out in my backyard, which is, we have a nice garden in back of our house. And I like, I love to sit out there. I especially love to sit out there early in the morning when I'm doing my morning prayers. Hmm. And I was sitting out there and at dawn, the birds are just singing like crazy. And I thought, well, here's singing. I'm surrounded by singing. And maybe I can just be here praying with the birds or, you know, singing, praying with the birds. And that was a, a revelation for me. And it led to a, a nice opportunity to share with, with, them, with my community perhaps an opportunity that uh, wouldn't have come otherwise. And then in response to your question specifically, Kenny, about this time where we're you know, really struggling as a society with issues of racial justice and injustice. And I do feel that, and this is another thing that I've spoken about, and it's something that I feel very deeply about, is that the thing that I need to believe in and communicate is that justice is possible that in the in in the face of all this injustice that there is a possibility of justice and what i understand that to mean is that there's it's possible for a group a society to go through a process of confronting and acknowledging the truth of injustice. And in this case, specifically this, the truth of the history of the black experience in the, in this place, in this country for 400 years to acknowledge the truth with as much honesty as possible. And then to figure out, this is what justice requires. It requires a, an honest confrontation with the truth and then to work to come up with an appropriate remedy, which is not an easy, easy thing to do. 
but uh, it, at all, <laughs> far from it. But I do believe that this is what the Jewish, and it's not just Jewish, but it's what our tradition of justice is really based on is the idea that if we can confront the honest truth and then identify what would be a just verdict, that if we can do that, we can actually repair. We can repair what's broken. And that notion of repair, you may have heard it. In Hebrew, it's called tikkun olam, you know, the repair mm -hmm. of the world. And that notion of tikkun olam is essentially our Jewish expression of the idea that the world is broken and that it is our job to work to repair what is broken. I find the idea of justice both inspiring and challenging. I look at examples in my own family, my wife, my kids, are very involved in the struggle for racial justice. And I also look in our community and I see some very inspiring uh, individuals. And, and I'm constantly looking for, well, what is my own part that I have to play in this? I really liked everything that you said, but yeah. what stood out to me is you saying that it's important to believe that justice is possible. Mm -hmm. and, and I definitely believe in that too, because I really feel that if we give into the idea that justice is impossible, that's just going to freeze all of our efforts and everything that happened to fight racial injustice back in June. It was in part possible because of how COVID changed our lives and it really forced people to slow down. And because of that, in a very unique way, people actually took the time to listen to black voices telling us that there are these racial injustices happening right before our eyes. I mean, we're not that advanced compared to not so long ago. And I think just from a religious standpoint as a Muslim, I know that it's not my job to pick when justice is going to be enacted, but I know that God has promised us justice. And as a human being, it's my job to work towards justice using my own efforts to the best of my ability mm. and at the same time being patient and not just saying oh i'm not seeing results therefore i'm gonna stop working and, and like you said believing that justice is possible is the only way to move forward it doesn't matter how long it's gonna take everything that so many people learned in june black people have been telling us for years and, mm. and for some mm. random reason a lot of people finally understood it in 2020 but imagine if people kind of gave up earlier than that we <clears throat> might have not reached the point that we've reached right now and i mean there's a lot more for us to do but like you said just believing that justice is possible is that idea that should propel us to keep working <laughs> And thank you for saying that. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, about the importance of combining a, you know, really determination with patience. It, it is hard to be patient and to not give up, you know, when, when one doesn't see all of the results. But part of what has opened our eyes to the reality of, or to some of the reality of, 
Black experience is cell phones and the fact that, you know, the George Floyd murder was captured on a video by somebody just standing there with their cell phone. Mm -hmm. There's something about seeing a person die uh, right in front of your eyes that that is undeniable in a way that it sort of penet penetrates our screens, uh, you know, the very human screens that, that go up to protect us from that kind of painful reality. Yeah, yeah. and it, I mean, it's true that us seeing that through a video is what woke up a lot of people, but it's also very sad that it took seeing it with our eyes yeah, to finally believe people. Like, it, it just yeah. wasn't enough to listen to the pain of the Black community talk about it and... Yeah, it was sad, but I mean, that video came at the right time. It, I mm -hmm. mean, it did its job for a lot of people for them to finally believe. Yeah. Another thing that I just remembered is is a similarity between our two faiths. We also believe in Prophet Moses. Mm. And that's one story for Muslims that is representative of justice and how God can really save a people from oppression, mm. even when it seems like it might be impossible. I mean... The Pharaoh's empire was powerful. And who would have expected that a small group of people would have been saved from him? And, and yeah. that all came from Prophet Moses and, and his followers just believing that God will save them. And I think as people of faith, that's another element to really believing in justice is that even though we might not think it's possible, us believing in God or a higher power, we need to believe that he's powerful enough to create that justice out of nothing. Absolutely. So that's story that I think of. Absolutely. That's that is the story of hope. My mother, who's a wonderful teacher, over the years has often said, imagine what it felt like to be an Israelite on the shore of the Red Sea with the army behind you and the sea in front of you. And it feels like there's no way out and no way through. And then suddenly, and, and imagine how discouraging and terrifying that that must have felt. And then yeah. there's an opening and there's an opening where you didn't think there was one. And I, I think that story has immense power to, and yes, I mean, it's so wonderful to be reminded that we share that story. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it does make me consider how, yeah, all, all of, all three of our traditions believe in a God who cares about systemic oppression, basically to use current language, who isn't okay with people suffering under such blatant lack of humanity. And I think I, I really grew up with this idea that, that our God is a God who does miracles. And we see that in individual healings, in the power to, for individuals to come through hard circumstances. But I think it was pretty rare that we actually applied this aspect of knowing that God is, is a God who cares about, yeah, who cares about systems in Christian tradition, obviously, we look at Jesus and we focus a lot on different healings that he did. And more recently, I've kind of thought about how even though something like something like an, an instantaneous healing of a single person would be amazing, 
I'm starting to think that kind of idea that our God is mainly the God who does individual healings is not the full truth, at least. And to say that instead that our God is a God who cares about systemic change uh, and, and that our God is a God who hears the cry and mm -hmm. that so much of being white in America and having the privileges that I do is that I'm distanced from so many cries mm -hmm. and thinking, how can I claim to care about what God cares about if I'm so intent on shutting out the cries of people, of animals, of so many in our world? And that's a pretty sobering thought <laughs> that if I yeah. want to, if I want to be confident that I know who God is, I need to be more committed to looking at what is true. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful teaching, Kenny. <laughs> I also, when I was, when you were talking about being able to hear those cries, to hear all of the cries, mm -hmm. just to relate it to an important the central uh, Jewish teaching is the six word, you know, Shema Yisrael, which means listen, hear, O Israel, listen, all of you, <laughs> listen. And that ability to, to, to drop the, the barriers and the screens and all of the things that we put up to protect ourselves from all of these cries. Because hmm. as, as I said earlier, I think that the screens are very human, very natural. It, it would be overwhelming to walk through life constantly <laughs> hearing all of the suffering yeah. that's, around, that's all around us. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow we are called to, to listen and to take it in and to respond at the same time that we can't allow it to um, overwhelm us. And I, and I think what Yasmin said earlier about patience is so important. It also relates to what I was saying earlier about Santa Barbara history and um, how to be in this place, to hear the voices of all of, all of the suffering voices over the centuries, and still at the same time to say, and this is my place. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try as much as I can to hear all of the stories, the wonderful stories and the hard stories, the tragic stories, the, the voices that are all around us and to take my place here and to be open to that all and to be responsible as much as I can be. I feel so grateful to so many black content creators in this time. There's been so much learning and humbling <laughs> because I was, I can admit that I was definitely raised with a certain kind of white savior complex. <laughs> mm. And I think that makes sense because when the world seems mostly good, which is what I grew up with being hidden from a lot of difficult realities, being able to be hidden from a lot of difficult realities, you see an issue and, and you immediately spring to it. You're like, oh my gosh, okay, like, what can I do? How can I make sure that, that this is, that, that this gets fixed? And to be welcomed into a hundreds of years long struggle by black Americans today is such a gift. And my first instinct in coming into conversation about racism in America was again, oh, okay, how do we fix this? And there's no way that ends other than burnout, needing some kind of urgent mm -hmm. thing so that I can stop feeling uncomfortable about what's actually happening. Mm. But 
there's so much of what I see from Black Americans is a focus on taking care of ourselves because this is this has been a very long fight. <laughs> and there has to be attention to what a lot of people now call self-care, but to deep rest. And I would love to hear, I mean, the Jewish tradition of Sabbath mm. is something that I did not take serious in my life until I started attending CBB mm. more mm -hmm. regularly. Certainly we talk about Sabbath in Christian traditions and there might be a couple of sermons a year that someone would say that. And I would usually think, oh yeah, I should do that. It is one of the commandments after all. Right. But it doesn't really work with our culture. <laughs> <laughs> no. And yeah, I'd love to hear a bit of your reflection on how Sabbath and deep rest has has encouraged you and keeps you going. So yes, I would begin by saying, and I like to point out to members of my community that it is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's right up there with honor your mother and your father and thou shalt not murder. And I like to ask people, well, first of all, why, you know, why does it even need to be a commandment? Don't we all just always feel tired? <laughs> don't we always feel, <laughs> don't we always feel like resting? And I think that there is something, I don't know if it's in our culture or if it's something that's deeply human because it has been a commandment for much, much longer, for 3,000 years. Mm -hmm. I think that there is something in us that doesn't want to stop thinking about the Hebrew word for Sabbath is Shabbat, which just which literally just means rest. And one of the deepest ways that the Torah that that our scripture um, talks about Shabbat is that it is explained in two ways. You know, one is that it is a, a reminder of the creation. The biblical story of creation is that over the course of six days, God brings the world into being. And then on the seventh day, God rests. And that there is a um, missing element in the creation before Shabbat comes in. And, and I think that the missing, the missing element is its holiness. It is peace. It is relationship all of these things. Shabbat is our day where we stop doing, we stop the work. Not because there's no more work to be done. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. But we stop the work of trying to fix the world. Hmm. And we just live, live here in this world together with the people that we love, the members of our family, the members of our community. And we have a day for being together, for singing together, praying together, learning together. And it really is for me the day that brings meaning into the world and into my life. The other piece in the Torah that is offered as the reason, the rationale for Shabbat is that it is a reminder, it's a memory of the liberation from slavery. And that's, I think, an, that's another very important uh, teaching that we are enslaved, all of us are 
enslaved to our list of things to do, all of the emails that haven't yet been answered, all of the responsibilities, all, all of the demands um, that we put on ourselves and that other people put on us. And Shabbat comes to free us from all of that. And as you say, Kenny, not because there's not because those responsibilities go away. They will be there on the at the end of at the end of the Shabbat. But it's a, a weekly reminder that not to be slaves to our devices, our iPhones, our social media accounts, our emails, our all of these things that that are designed to command us and to command our attention, to command our time, to, to you know, take over our lives. And there's a, Shabbat is a weekly act of self-liberation, of communal self-liberation and saying, no, actually I'm going to set aside 20, 25 hours, 25 hours to not do all of those things, but to just be with my family, my community, with God. And that's going to make me a much better person and ready to get started on the work again at the end of the day. I really loved learning about all of that, about Shabbat. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, I didn't know. And it it really Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. And it it makes me think about what rest means for Muslims. And Mm -hmm. first, I wanted to say something about what Kenny was mentioning earlier about burnout. And I think that is is such a normal thing for human beings. It's like our, our intention is in the right place, but it is very possible to exhaust ourselves. And mm-hmm. especially with working against racial injustice or against any type of oppression in the world. First, it's like we will never feel what true burnout is from somebody who's actually experiencing it. So as much as I am thankful for these Black content creators teaching us all very basic human empathy, to be honest, that we're not owed that at all. And it's it, and if, if it stops all of a sudden because they're exhausted about teaching us basic things, we have to accept it and, and just look within ourselves on how to be good human beings. But I think in terms of rest for Muslims, we don't have a particular day to rest from worldly responsibilities, but we see the five daily prayers as us disconnecting from whatever we're doing in the world to go back to what our true purpose is for Muslims. So mm. for Muslims, we're, we're actually given the answer in the Quran of what is the purpose of our, like, us being on earth and that is none other than to worship god and so for us it's dropping what our bodies need from us or or want throughout the day with like our responsibilities our jobs our to-do lists and going back to our actual duty and not only is it a duty for us to worship god it's also healthy for our hearts and Mm. so so it's amazing that we believe that God doesn't owe us anything, but praying to him and worshiping him is the essence of our hearts and our hearts do find peace in that. So we're given that responsibility to disconnect five times a day. Another thing is the weekly Friday sermon that is for Muslims considered to kind of be a recharge of our faith, just because it is part of human nature to forget our purpose and 
the Friday sermon is our weekly reminder about what you know we should be doing as Muslims. And also the last thing is Muslims believe that our bodies are something called an amana to us, which is basically our bodies are entrusted to us. So we have a responsibility to take care of them, meaning that we do need to pay attention to when we're becoming exhausted, when we're overworking ourselves, when we're feeling sick, when our mental health isn't the best. It is our responsibility to prioritize our bodies even if that means taking breaks that others don't see are necessary. But we do, as Muslims, have to respect our bodies because they are a creation of God. So just like Muslims are supposed to be taking care of the earth and respecting the earth, we also have to respect the needs of our bodies as well. And so we are supposed to take rest as necessary. Hmm. So beautiful, Yasmin. And I'm always inspired when I hear uh, you or any of my Muslim friends talking about their relationship with prayer and their relationship with God through prayer. I think there's a lot that that I and that my community has to learn from you. Steve, as you were speaking about Shabbat as not just a time to rest in general, but to rest from the work of tikkun olam, of repairing Mm -hmm. the world, Mm -hmm. those things kind of go together. And it occurs to me that something happens to me or something happened to me and continues to happen to me when I started to actually practice a Sabbath day to get a taste of not being anxious or not being as anxious, Mm. to get a taste of what healthy living, what relaxing with community looks like. That kind of ruins the system that we're kind of coached into of just keep going and just keep going. Mm -hmm. And when you get a taste of that, kind of throws everything out of whack in the best way. (laughs) Because (laughs) it's, yeah, it's beautiful. And and it's a time, like you said, to to find or to return to our sense of meaning and purpose as being and being with each other and worshiping and praying together. As you said, Yasmin, these are our purposes. And I think whether intentionally or not, our social systems to anthropomorphize a bit don't really want us to get a taste of rest. Mm. Because I think it's when we're constantly moving and moving that we believe that's actually, that's kind of the way life goes and that's just how it is. But like you said, we have to actually be told to rest. Yeah, like it's a commandment and it seems like a weird commandment (laughs) um, until you realize, yeah, you know what? I actually do need to be told to do this (laughs) right? Um, or else I really won't stop. But that in between resting time, whether it be one day a week or praying five times a day, that in between we go for it. (laughs) You know, we, we, we give our effort to do our duties to God, to each other and to the planet. It gives me a dream that someday religious people will not be seen as bigots who are set on not engaging the world <laughs> mm-hmm. or who are yeah living in some alternative reality that has nothing to do with this world here, but that instead that religious people would be seen as people who fight hard and who rest hard. I hope that's not in general the way religious people are seen. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, today, today is... Dr. Martin Luther King Day. And, you know, I think, I think that people 
know that his power and his inspiration was was a religious power and religious inspiration and yeah I, I believe that people see religion as being a force that has great potential for both good and bad yeah as i looking at youth i think there is a lot of despair on mm. what the meaning of religion is and and i mm. think just mm. like going off of a teaching in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, tells us that the Muslim who engages with the community is actually the better Muslim than the Muslim who hides away and spends all of his days and nights praying to God. And I think that's something very important to know is that part of Islam, part of worship is engaging the community because Muslims believe that the earth is temporary and our forever life is going to be in the afterlife after this life. However, that doesn't mean that we're just going to isolate ourselves and not care about what's going on here. And that actually it's better for us to engage ourselves with the community, even though the people around us might not believe what we believe, might not be doing the things that we're comfortable with, but it is important to engage because in my opinion, that's the only way to not only be an example of a good citizen, which is in line with Islam, but also it's, I think if you just isolate yourself all the time, you get you get into this tunnel of thinking that your way is the only way of being religious and you miss out on opportunities where you're humbled by others and the good works that they're doing. And that's only possible when you interact with others. Yeah. And I do, again, I'll say I do have hope that people will know what will see religious religion as a force for good in our world, being in interfaith circles and talking with people from other religions definitely gives me hope for that. That's one of the things that I'm really hoping will come out of the, the human family project, the Human Family Podcast. I know when you said, Yasmin, that there's a lot of despair among the among young people about the place of religion. And I get that. And I know that it probably feels to a lot of young people, it just feels like religion is just dividing people from each other. And it's not a way to to help repair the world. But at the same time, I do think that people want the connectedness that religion provides to other people, you know, to other people in one's community, to, to people throughout time. At least that's what I think about and talk about with, with the young people in our congregation. I, you know, I talk about how lucky we are that we have this tradition that connects us to Jewish people all over the world and throughout time. And I think they get it on some level. Uh, it's not something that they always feel comfortable with or at home with, but I think they get it. And I think that what we're doing with this, this human family project is actually helping people see that being connected with one's own community doesn't mean that you are necessarily disconnected from people in other communities, that it's possible to have both, mm -hmm. to, to be really grounded and rooted in one's own tradition and community, and also be 
open and learning from and in communication with people from other religious traditions. And so many of my most moving experiences as a Jew and as a rabbi have been in interfaith conversations. Because it's so, it's so exciting to, to become aware of the parallels and things that are resonating at the same as, and also the diversity. It's all incredibly interesting and delightful. As a final question, I'd love to hear about your sense of hope as you find it in the Jewish community and here in Santa Barbara. Mm. I mean, I know that there are programs like you were mentioning for young, for younger people in town. But yeah, I'd love to hear more about Mm. your sense of hope here in this place. Well, as somebody who is in his 60s, certainly for me, so much of it, so much of it is in encounters with people in their 20s and teens and 30s, you know, people who are going to be the, the leaders and also just the Santa Barbarians. I guess it's Barbarenos, is that the proper term? Anyway, (laughs) um, I don't know either. (laughs) My father always used to call us the Santa Barbarians. But anyway, to me, it's all about meeting meeting young people and and interacting with them and, and learning from them. So to me, that's where I find the hope. For me, the hope is in the the conversations and and the sharing, both across generations and across communities, across religions, anytime that what seemed like a wall turns out to be a doorway and the doorway opens, what could be more inspiring of optimism than that? Doors opening. And a conversation like this is one example of it. But I find myself having these wonderful moments of discovery often. And it also, even with, with the elderly, to meet somebody who is in their 90s or even over 100, who is actually still capable of cracking jokes, uh, being funny, being alive, being, being interested in learning, that also is equally inspiring for me. So any, I guess any time that I find somebody that I meet somebody who is reaching out beyond their own little box. And it's happening all the time and all, all around us. So those are the things that give me hope. I agree with you. I think youth are definitely very inspiring. To me, it's the generation right below me, Gen Z. Mm. I think uh, it's really nice to see younger people that do things that I always wished my peers did and just seeing that there's hope that we actually are moving forward but not only that it's also seeing people who are older than me actually believe in us and with all of their wisdom and from their life experiences kind of reassuring us and telling us you guys are moving in the right direction you guys are doing great and so that also gives me hope that it's not just younger people just doing whatever they want it's i mean we're moving with intention it's not us being silly or whatever <laughs> mm. yeah and it sounds like it comes down to being committed to hearing other stories mm. so much of it is yeah. hearing 
other stories, whether people who are older than us or people who are younger than us. I mean, one of the things that's so different about the younger generation is that they hear more stories than ever mm -hmm. I mean, on Instagram, TikTok. I don't know what other platforms there are out there right now. But, you know, people I'm are glad sharing. to hear. I'm glad to hear that you don't. Okay, because there are very well <laughs> I could be things I have sure no don't. idea about. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's a, a capability of sharing stories that the individual has never had access to, I think, mm. in the history of our whole world. Mm. And that is inspiring to me. Mm. Rabbi Steve, how can we connect with you or your community or our listeners as well? Yeah, the standard portal would be our, <laughs> our website. Mm. Um, which is www.cbbsb.org. So that stands for Congregation B'nai B'rith Santa Barbara. So cbbsb.org. And that, that will take you to, among other things, information about us and what we're doing and, and also a calendar. Right now, we are doing a lot online programming. Mm -hmm. And I know, Kenny, you've attended some of the Torah study. So every Saturday morning, we have a, about an hour and a half of Torah study. Every Friday night, there's a, a um, worship service Friday night at 6 every week, and then also on Saturday morning at 10.30. And it's all virtual at the moment, which is in some ways lacking uh, we're lacking the physical experience of being together and feeling each other's bodies vibrating. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's some good also. People are joining us from all over the world, and that's kind of that's kind of fun. So we have a lot of of programs going on, and uh, and everybody's welcome to all of them. Thank you. Sure. I do want to. I do. I want to emphasize that that. Mm -hmm. It's a priority hmm. of mine and of our community to really open the doors and to invite people to come and be curious about us hmm. and visit and participate and with absolutely no need to, to join or to share, share who you are or what, why you're there to just, you know, just come and visit and be curious. And our commitment is also to, to go out and to learn about everybody else as well. Hmm. Cause I, I, I think that's the, the work that's a, a huge part of the, the work that we have to do right now is we're doing everything that we can to create and sustain and transmit our Jewish traditions and our Jewish identity and our Jewish faith. And equally important right now is for us to connect and to, you know, really fully participate in the human family. Wonderful. Would you be willing to offer us a blessing to close our time today? I'd like to express my thanks First of all, to, to you, Kenny, and to you, Yasmin, for your thoughtfulness, each one of you, your thoughtfulness, your openness, just the beauty of your souls and your deep wisdom. And I would like to also express my gratitude to God, who I honestly believe brings us together 
all the time and brought us together this afternoon and was present in our conversation. Thank you, God. Thank you so much, Rabbi Steve. Thank you, Yasmin. This has been awesome to talk with you both. And I can't wait to show up at more uh, CVP programs because right. it's always such a joy to be there. It's always nice to have you there, Kenny. <laughs> Yeah, and, thank you. And all, always wonderful to be with you, Yasmin. I look yeah, forward to many opportunities in the future. Yeah, it was great learning from you and seeing you again. And thank you, Kenny, again for organizing this. And yeah, really enjoyed it. My pleasure. All right, friends. Okay. Take care and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank Thanks you. Too. Bye. Great, bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. One of my favorite things about having conversations like these is learning about what values my faith shares with other faiths. As a Muslim, justice is one value that Islam teaches me to uphold. Today, I also learned about the importance of justice in Judaism, and this gives me hope for a better world that is achieved by an interfaith effort. Next week, we'll have a conversation with Nakia Zavala, who is the Culture and Language Director for the Santa Inez Band of Shumash Indians. Please subscribe to our podcast to see our latest episodes each week and share it with your friends. And always feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com.